0: This is CliffCentral.com. Good
1: afternoon. You're tuned into the Daily Maverick Show on Cliff Central. Um, as usual, my name is Kingsley Kipuri and I'll be your host for the next hour. Uh, we've got quite an exciting show lined up. I'm joined in studio by Angolan activist, uh, award-winning journalist and writer uh, Rafael Marques de Morais. Um, Rafael, welcome to the show.
0: Thank you very much uh, for inviting me. I'm
1: so glad that you you know you've managed to to find time to be with us. I know you have a very packed schedule.
0: Uh, it's always a pleasure to make time for friends.
1: <laughs> for friends, I like I like that we've been elevated to the to the <laughs> status of friendship. Um, uh, Rafael, you've been. You've been writing a lot about about freedom of speech and expression and corruption in Angola. You've been quite a thorn in sort of the state side for a few years. And, and if I'm not wrong, you were in prison as recently as last week or you were arrested as recently as last week.
0: I was briefly held. Uh, the police has developed a new language okay. for arrests, which it calls nowadays uh, when it involves uh, politically sensitive individuals. Mm-hmm. Uh, the police says it has gathered the individuals. Okay. So not arrested them, but gathered. Okay. Um, so I was gathered by, briefly gathered by the police uh, to use uh, the official term now, uh, which is not imprisonment or arrest or detention, but
1: gathering. Okay. And and when you claim arrested, they say no, we didn't arrest him. We, no, we, we, we just gathered.
0: Uh, briefly gathered him.
1: Okay. Okay. <laughs> Okay. I mean, what is your, what is your current status with the state? Because if, if I'm not mistaken, you had the, the two years suspended sentence and it seems. So are you, are you a free man? Are you, what, what is exactly your sort of state in regardless, in regards to the, the judicial system in Angola right now?
0: You posed that very important question, yeah. whether I'm a free man or not. And my answer is that I'm a free man okay. and I will always be a free man because it depends on my conscience mm-hmm. to be free. Uh, the body is a shackle, and the government can imprison that body, uh, and we can have limitations with uh, with our bodies um, due to health issues or others, but uh, we cannot have limitations with the ideals we espouse and how do we defend them. And so that's why I'm a free man. Whether the government wants to contain my body wants to punish me or not, it's a business of the government. My business is to remain free because uh, I believe in the work I do.
1: Mm.
0: I believe uh, in the importance of me being a good citizen Mm -hmm. and upholding to the values enshrined in the Constitution, such as the rights to freedom of expression, human rights, uh, freedom of press and that's what I do so I'm a free man for that and uh, no government, no political pressure, no police officer can gather my thoughts and uh, my resolve uh, to do what I think is right and constitutionally binding
1: I mean your I mean, stance, your your sort of confidence in 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 what is right and in what is just is so it's it's powerful, and I'm feeling it, and it's 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 inspired a lot of people, I think, in Angola and around the around the world to 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 also stand with you.
0: I grew up as a very shy young boy. Okay, uh, a boy and a young man, to put it right. Mm-hmm. And to a certain extent, I'm still a very shy person. But I also believe that um, if I'm entitled to speak out by law, by my profession, mm. then that's all I need to do. And then go home and be quiet with my family. Uh Also, quite often we have an issue here across Africa, not just Angola, in which you see very intelligent people, very good people, very creative people. And you ask yourself, why do we always get very bad governments, very incompetent governments, thieves in power, when we have such wonderful people? Because quite often... Those who feel to be, to have integrity, to be honest, shy away from pushing the boundaries to ensure that, um, evil, evil does not prevail over, um, what we believe should be the common sense in terms of running a society, in terms of coexisting, um, Look at South Africa now.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: It's a good example of how the political elite is basically uh, running the country astray. All these problems, Marikana, Nkandla, and so forth. And then you come to South Africa, Zangolans, for instance, we said, How come now South Africa has load shedding? You know that's a problem we have in Angola, and we always had, and we feel it normal. So normal that uh, you cannot feel um, being middle class or having some privileges if you don't have a power generator and uh, an underground water tank with at least three to six thousand liters. You
1: just can't rely on permanent water and electricity. No, like because.
0: Blackouts uh, are permanent, are just a regular feature. Mm. And contrary to South Africa, where you have a schedule, uh, in the capital it just goes off and no one tells you anything. Yeah. But then you try to look up to other countries. And for years, we Angolans tried to look up to South Africa okay. to say, this is how we must run our country at least or have a good example. So then you look across and then you just see bad examples of bad governments. Yeah. How do we change that? We're citizens and we have to ask these questions ourselves on a very daily basis. How do we change bad governments? How do we uh with our knowledge as citizens contribute to good governance? And that is not idealistic, you know. It's simply because individuals who are often incompetent are more ambitious in pursuing the capture of the state. Yeah. And individuals who are very intellectual, very honest, uh, or just have skills to run things properly, mm-hmm. once their proposals get dished, and I'm sure, for instance, yesterday I was at a dinner, and uh, with some academics and they were talking about uh, now South Africa trying to buy Russian nuclear mm, yes. power plants yes. and the Chinese also offering some kinds of services mm. when South Africa had internally the skills to make things better. But then you won't find these individuals holding discussions, you know, uh, holding their foot to say, these are the skills we have and this is how we can make things work better. And then you will let the politicians bring in the Russian nuclear plants or the Chinese, uh, you know, plants, and then uh, have to retrain people to use that kind of technology when you can actually find individuals in South Africa who have the skills and uh, the drive to make, to bring, uh, to ha- uh, come up with homemade solutions uh, for the energy crisis and in the region also there is potential that could help but we do not seem to be able to cross boundaries and elevate the capacities that exist within the region to make things work in favor of the peoples you know uh, and i say that because for years there was this frontline states ideal in which um, peoples across the region contributed for some kind of um, ideals of freedom, of yeah. independence. Yeah. Uh, but nowadays, we cannot bring ourselves to think, how can we be a frontline again, but this time for job creation, uh, for more um, business interactions uh, within the region that could be a lifeline for the economies of the region. <laughs>
1: I think that, 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 that coupling of, of economic progress and, 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 and social and social justice progress is, is an interesting one. Cause I, I dare say that one of the reasons that, I, that perhaps the issues in Angola are not so widely discussed is that Angola's economy was doing from an external perspective very well for a long time. It was one was the top 10, you know, fastest growing economies in the world. So I think there's often an assumption that if the economy is doing well or seems
0: to be doing well externally, and the people must be doing well what and do the economy of? was doing wonderful yeah but for the foreigners and for the ruling elite not for the majority of the people uh, just to give you an example um the portuguese over 200,000 flocked to angola between 2000 uh in the post war reconstruction period from 2002 to 2014 mm-hmm. And they were remitting over 200 uh, million euros a year back to Portugal, from Angola to Portugal. So the second largest remittance Portugal received from abroad. Essentially what happened was the government came up with a policy of national reconstruction Mm -hmm. uh, that excluded ordinary Angolans brought in over two hundred and fifty thousand Chinese workers for the rebuilding of the country. Uh, on the political discourse that Angolans were too lazy, that Angolans did not have the skills, uh and therefore the Chinese would build things faster as well, and the government would provide for the people. Yeah. And there was an incentive there. And people believe that, okay, if we don't have to work and just wait for the housing and uh, the goods this national reconstruction will bring, then we will sit and wait. Yeah, it sounds
1: pretty good. I just wait and and progress just happens around me.
0: So basically, the government immobilized, you know, especially the youth bulge Mm. in this sort of illusion that they didn't need to work. They didn't need to be uh, useful. They just needed to sit and wait. And therefore, there was no critical mass in the country to question the very process of national reconstruction. And you cannot rebuild a country without engaging your own citizens. And then so what happened then, for instance, the real estate boom in Angola, mm. and we had apartments now selling for $10 million apiece. And it became the most expensive real estate uh, market uh, in the world to a certain extent, yeah. where ordinary houses uh, without swimming pools were selling mm. for $3 million. But this was all catering for the foreigners mm. uh, converging in Angola to provide services to the government at all levels. We had uh, for several years up to last year, uh, throughout the country, uh, road signs in Mandarin to direct Chinese truck drivers. And one question I wrote in one article, I said, "Well, during the war, we didn't see Chinese truck drivers uh, trying to take food to people, and drivers risking their lives uh, to ensure that the provisions would get to areas uh, cut off by the war. Mm. So, how come now?" All of a sudden. All of a sudden, when the country was able to make between 2004 to 2010, around that, in a period of six years, mm. uh, because of the oil boom, nearly a trillion, uh, half a trillion dollars. So when you look now at this staggering amount of money and you look at what has been rebuilt and how society now is at a crisis because uh, once the oil prices fell to below 50, suddenly there was no money in Angola. And then the question is, where are the half trillion dollars? How did the government spend it? And on what? That we did not make provisions, yeah. did not diversify the economy. So it's an important, a critical element. That's why in my work, I do not uh, distance or um detract from the issues of corruption, human rights, mm. and social and economic justice, right. uh, because they go hand in hand. Um, and it's also because of the institutionalization of corruption in the mm. country uh, that um, government officials feel nowadays the need to repress more. And why? Because... What always worked in Angola was a parallel system of uh, the stick and carrot, as Mm. I call it, Mm. Uh, corruption to entice people that they could fend for themselves Mm. without uh, need for the state to regulate the economy and provide adequate salaries and people could just use their positions uh, in the public sector as private stalls to sell Uh, extra services to the public Mm. and then the stick which is the political violence uh, to met out uh, justice to those who dare to challenge uh, the status quo Uh, and I will give you an example of how it can be so micromanaged in terms of political violence uh, just recently, mm-hmm. I went to fix my car in the mechanic. Okay. And there were two MPLA members at the mechanic. And they asked the mechanic, why was he servicing my car? Didn't he know that the day uh, MPLA issues the... the MPLA is the ruling uh, party, the NC counterpart in Angola. Uh, the day they send uh, the people... To mount me down with the machine guns, the mechanic will also be collateral damage, but that 's how they try to isolate those who are critical mm. of the system to the extent of even interfering in something as parochial yes. uh, as taking the car to the mechanic. Mm.
1: Do you ever get scared when you hear, when you hear these threats and, and, and you live under surveillance? You've written that you, you, you know, that you feel like, you know, under surveillance and there's threats of being gathered or actually imprisoned or being, or being under the threat of violence. Do you ever get scared? Do you ever consider not doing this anymore?
0: Uh, it actually just uh, heightens my resolve because that proves that, um, I'm doing the right work. I'm doing the right thing. And a government who cannot tolerate criticism Mm. is a government that does not deserve to be in power. Period. Is a government that does not, is not prepared to serve its own people. Because if it's prepared to serve its own people, Mm. it should expect and it should be able to respond, uh, and address the criticisms that come from society Contrary to it It's a government that must be put in
1: did you, did you always have such a strong sense of, of, of social justice Or was there some particular turning point That, that maybe awoke you or, I mean, I'm just curious when, when did you feel like you really Your eyes sort of opened up To what was going on around
0: you um, I grew with a sense of uh, Fairness At home from my mother Mm -hmm. Who was a simple Vendor uh, Market vendor And at some point uh, I remember the first time I Reported on corruption For the state daily newspaper Mm -hmm. Journal of Angola uh, Which to date is the only daily newspaper In the country It was about uh, a member of the MPLA parliament Mm -hmm. Who also ran. Uh, a terminal at the Angolan port, uh, Luanda's port. And his main business actually was stealing the merchandise that arrived at his terminal mm-hmm. and sell it in his own shops. And I did an investigation actually with the help of the police commander at the time okay. in the port. Okay. And I published the story. Okay. So he went to the newspaper. Uh, he sent his brother, who was a general, mm-hmm. Uh, for us to deny the story. A general story. in the army? And the police? A general in the army. Okay. For us to deny the story. Okay. And we refused. And he punched my colleague, the photographer, because we even took photography, pictures of the containers. Okay. He had diverted from the terminal to steal the goods and then return them empty. Mm. And at some point, he went personally to the newsroom, negotiated with the director of the newspaper, mm. And then the director came and said, yes, we have to deny the story. And my editor at the time said, you know, the facts are all right. So if the member of parliament wants to deny it, then he should write the denial himself. So he sat and, of course, he could not uh, write. And then someone had to help him. And I said, the newspaper does not belong to my family. It belongs to the state. If that's the state's will fine but i have nothing to do mm. with the story so i refused to be part of it and a denial was issued then his uh director called me to offer me uh boxes of fish and it was a time in 92 of uh 93
1: mm-hmm.
0: When the war had just, uh, escalated in the country and there was serious.
1: It was still, still under civil war at this time. Yes.
0: And, uh, famine and, and beer and crates of beer. And I'm a vegetarian. So he just added insult to injury. <laughs> By offering me so he, fish He
1: miscalculated his, his <laughs> carrot in this situation An actual carrot would have been more, have been
0: more in life. Exactly He just <laughs> added insult to injury And I was very very angry That Someone who was doing so much damage To other business people Would think That he could bribe a journalist With fish and beer And it was just To me it was disgusting And so I really, that's when I thought, I said, you know, if I have another opportunity to blast these guys, I will just do it. And uh, fortunately, I have not strayed uh, from um, that sort of commitment. Um, because, again, politicians are individuals like us. Mm. What makes them so powerful? Security apparatus, I always say in Angola, and uh, politicians get very angry, I say, these police officers, some of them, well, most of them are cousins, brothers, you know, <laughs> uncles. Um, security forces, the same. Yeah. Military, the same. Just regular people. <laughs> regular people. So there was even an incident once I wrote about a police commander who... Hmm in a case of torture of a young female activist and the way they just basically abused this woman and just commanders tortured her. And then uh, I received a call from my mother mm-hmm. saying, oh, you know, uh, so-and-so. Actually, one of the commanders was of our relation. <laughs> and I wasn't aware of it <laughs> and said, no, he's a family man. He's a good man. Uh, so what happened? <laughs> I said, well, this woman was very badly, uh, beaten up. Then I realized that the someone, uh, his, uh, the commander who was standing for him used his identity and he got the blame. But it just shows that, uh, the repressive apparatus is not distant from us and we can influence on a daily basis the same way this individual was able to call uh, my mother and say you know how come i'm a family man i was also able to speak to his family to his family and just as i came here to south africa i traveled uh, sitting next to me was the son of a police commander who requested to sit next to me and uh and he was talking about the father as well okay and then i asked him how do you feel to have your father being part of a system that brutally assaults young people for the right to – because they're simply exercising their right to protest and throws them in jail and all this violence? How do you feel about it? And he said, I asked my father the same question. And my father said, look at Obama. Has he been able to close Guantanamo Bay? You know, and everyone loves Obama and so no relation. But then you see that within society, a debate, uh, even at family level, is taking place. Mm-hmm. And that's what is important to stimulate, you know. And I didn't feel this young man who was asking me all these questions mm-hmm. uh, as the son of a police commander. I saw him as a fellow citizen yeah. and someone who was interested to engage in dialogue with me, to even... Uh, understand his own situation as the son of a police commander and what the police is doing nowadays in beating up uh, and the main reason why he also wanted to talk to me was because on August 8th when I was briefly held mm. gathered, <laughs> briefly gathered <laughs> uh, mothers uh, of 15 political prisoners yeah. took to the streets to call for the freedom of the children Uh, who were accused of plotting a coup against President Dushantos while in a book club reading discussing uh, strategies of non-violence, non-violent protest and uh, Gandhi, Martin Luther King. Mm. And so they were just coup plotters because they were trying to use their intellect to think of ways of addressing the current situation in Angola without being punching bags for the authorities. And, uh, and I'm sure I will see again this young man and we will continue with this conversation. Mm. Uh, but again, it's not the idea that we need to replace the president who's been in power th- for 36 years and needs to go anyway. It's the idea that we need to change our mindset first and foremost because dictators strive where The mentality, the public mindset allows for it, you know, because a dictator is one individual, regardless of the apparatus he can create. So if a society is not able to, you know, put one man in his place, then there is something fundamentally wrong with that society. And there is something structurally wrong with the Angolan society, you know, because again, One of President Dushanto's greatest uh, achievements was to impart in the Angolan mindset Mm. that the idea that uh, the state is a lottery, the country's resources are a lottery, and people don't need to work. People do not need to be uh, studied seriously. They just need to get diplomas. Uh, And I give another example in the past 10 years over since 2002 uh, basically in the past 10 years um there have been the government has accredited over 40 higher education uh, institutions universities mm. in the same period of time you might not count the same number of high schools created by the government so you wonder then how do people move from secondary to university without going, because in Angola, secondary and high school are different. Okay. Uh,
1: secondary comes first and then high school and high school and then you,
0: okay, university. But anyway, basically what we're talking about is people jumping from primary Mm -hmm. school to university. So, of course, statistically, you can say now that Angola in the past 10 years has trained uh, tens of, tens of thousands of, uh, uh, people, uh, that have earned their degrees at university level. But we have a situation whereby economists don't know how to do simple math. Lawyers do not know how to write. And so, but these individuals will fit into the system. Yeah. You know, because mediocrity has become a tool that is promoted. all you need to do is to be mediocre and have a membership card of the ruling party
1: I'm I'm glad that you brought this up because I, I mean I, I can imagine people look to you for direction and almost want to know what's the end game what are we what are we going for and I assume the, the easy categories uh sort of one is to is to push for. Reform within the within the ruling party. I suppose another one is to is to have them voted out and have somebody else in their place. But you you sound like you're striving for something that's, that's a lot more difficult. You're talking about social consciousness and people changing their mindsets. But how 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 does one do that? I I, I hear you that that's that's what we should be
0: aiming for. But how? You know, <clears throat> take South Africa. <laughs> Uh no regime in Africa has been more competent in setting up an apparatus of repression mm. and segregation than the apartheid regime yeah you know it was extremely methodical you know, what you have the Mobutus the Boassaas are just individuals who were uh very good at mass killing yeah, it's brute
1: force versus brute like force. structural
0: yes. Set Here up. you had structural, yeah. and you had social conscience, and that's what kept South Africa together, and that's what is being lost, social consciousness in South Africa. It's possible to have it in Angola because, again, the end game is not the capture of the state. By by another, by it's somebody the else. liberation <laughs> of the state okay. to be at the service of the people as a regulatory body. So if uh, Empelia goes tomorrow and comes UNIT or another party, yeah. and we maintain the same mentality that we don't need to work to have perks, mm. we need to have membership card, then people will switch the membership cards from Empelia to unito or to any other party yeah. because we haven't changed our That's ways so. of dealing with one another. So for me, the most important Yes, President Ushantos must go. Yes, MPLA has been in power for 40 years mm. and, uh, it's time also to, to go. Uh, yes, UNITA has been, uh, was a movement, uh, that took so many years, uh, in the bush, yeah. waging, uh, a civil war against the government. Mm. And a new generation has also to rise within UNITA, mm. uh, to make it a meaningful opposition. A party, or even a ruling party. But, if we don't change our mindset, and I will give you an example. Please. Uh, in 2012, after the elections, the Empelia, the government of Empelia, distributed a Lexus 570 to each member of parliament as gifts. And it's quite regular. So, Each one of those cars cost over $130,000 in Angola. And over 250 of those cars were bought for the National Assembly. Besides other perks and BMWs as well. Uh, And I wrote about that. No member of the opposition refused to receive the car. And just the windshield of... One of those cars costs $8,000.
1: Not one opposition party member returned it or declined it? No.
0: So it's the mindset. Of course, if he has not declined it, if he comes to power with that same mindset, he will say, well, okay, this time the only shift is that more of us will get the Lexus because we are in power, and lesser of those who were before in power Mm. will get it. Mm. And so the change is that we know the value of money. Angolans do not know the value of money. Um, I've dealt with rich people in Angola who've uh, plundered the state coffers to the tunes of hundreds of millions of dollars. And once in a while I've uh, engaged with such individuals and uh, followed them around just to have a feeling of how they spend their money, I cry because it's not different. And these people call themselves business people, but it's not different the way 50 cent in the U.S. <laughs> deals with his own money. The difference being that 50 cent sinks didn't steal from anyone And these individuals have gone to the public purses and have just uh, uh, taken whatever it was needed. And there's also two other important aspects that is quite important to address. And uh, I try to do that through my work and uh, my um, public interventions. Uh, In Angola, there is no separation of powers. And there is no separation between what is public and what is private.
1: Okay. So the judiciary, the executive,
0: it's all its all sort of meshed into ones. It's it meshed into ones, yeah. yes. And one example, for instance, when we look at Angola, and uh, just last year I criticized uh Kosana Dlamini who made a statement, uh, gave an interview explaining that Angola... Uh, had a legitimate government and had a constitution and had done everything by the books in a very democratic way. And then I explained that we have a unique constitution in the world in which the president is neither elected by directly by the people or by parliament. That's where we have the problem. So all the powers are concentrated in the presidency. Mm. The president is also the head of the executive, but constitutionally the executive branch is an auxiliary body of the president, does not have um, – uh, in the past constitutional law, it was a sovereign body, one of the four sovereign bodies. Mm-hmm. Nowadays, we just have three, the president, the judiciary, and the parliament. Yeah. The parliament does not have oversight of the government because the president is a sovereign body and therefore the parliament cannot oversee yeah. a sovereign body. And also when we go to elections, it is the first name on the list of the winning party that automatically becomes president of the republic. Within the empelia, only one person has the power to draw that list. Is the president. The
1: president who was the first on the list the last time. Yes.
0: So essentially, it's up to the president to appoint the president of the republic. That's it. And another critical aspect, and just talking about uh, the constitution uh, as well and the elections, uh, is that imagine if we have uh, 20 parties running and the winning party has 10% of the votes. It has the mandate to run the country and the first name on the list becomes the president of the republic with all powers without having to negotiate with anyone, because parliament does not have oversight of what the executive does. So it's actually ultimate power. (laughs) It's absolute power. It's absolute power. And that is wrong and needs to be changed and needs to be challenged and needs to be talked about. So there is uh, an understanding, especially outside Angola of what our constitution is made of, and how you can have elections to ensure that there is no democracy.
1: Um, MPLA is having its sort of elective process coming up soon. Do you, do you see or do you foresee, um, President Dos Santos staying on? Do you think there'll be some kind of succession plan, perhaps his son, perhaps somebody else?
0: I, this is my personal yeah. opinion. Yeah. I believe President Dushantos has lost the opportunity to leave power nicely and retire quietly. The way President Dushantos has captured the state resources and uh, divided it between his family and his cronies, and the current waves of crimes that are being committed, uh, we had a massacre of uh, pilgrims, just last April in uh, the central highlands province of Wambo. Yeah. And it's reckoned that at least a thousand pilgrims were uh, uh, massacred by the police. These issues will come to haunt him once he leaves the presidency. Yeah. And the president has no ability to negotiate with, uh, with his own critics for a way out of power. And so his major problem won't be the opposition. It will be people within his own party who have felt estranged from this absolutism of power by the president. And the fact also that the president has uh, sidelined many of the Empelia veterans and intellectuals and Mm. critics Mm. and individuals. The critical mass of Empelia has been sidelined. And what has emerged now as uh, the party aparachics, uh, some are just street thugs, especially one named uh, Bento Kangamba, who actually married the president's niece, who happens to be also the director of the president's office, deputy director of the president's office. Mm So, and then in the past few years, the president has been surrounding himself with his relatives and his wife's relatives. Um, and that does not bode well for him because he has no way out of power. So my sense is the president will want to stay in power until he dies and he will do anything. Uh, so that once that happens, then it will no longer be his problem and he will not have to worry. About where to live in exile, mm. or if he remains in Angola, uh, if he will be arrested, if what will happen to mm. him. Mm. And I uh, recently I wrote uh, an open letter to the president, uh, asking him to free the political prisoners, the young people who are being used as scapegoats yeah. for the failures of the economic situation, for the Mount Sumi massacre, mm. and other issues. Uh, but also pointing out to the president that he must start engaging with his critics if he's to salvage even his family's uh, assets in the country yeah. or just a portion of it. Because uh, I cannot see a situation in Angola changing and the family keeping everything it has because it's basically the country. And uh that won't be possible, but he can mitigate the situation, and he can ensure that his children can stay in the country and have a future uh, there and uh work with others uh if he takes the resolution of surrendering power uh in a transitional manner, yeah. and he can only do that if he speaks to those he sought over these years to destroy. So even from a self-interested perspective, it's actually in his best interest to actually start start engaging is what it sounds like. It is in his best interest because, you know, one thing I always uh, say, and I remember, for instance, uh, for years, mm. I was a critic of the Portuguese intervention in Angola and I called Portugal a laundromat for uh Angola's uh money laundering schemes. And people were very angry at me and I was even banned in some Portuguese media. Uh, and one uh quite well known uh, uh TV anchor mm. uh had his contract um, was not renovated for inviting me to oh. his news nights programmes. His name is Mario Crespo and he Has a long history with South Africa. He Mm. worked here for many years for SABC. And I always said, Angola depends on oil. 96%, at least, between 95 and 96%, Mm. of Mm. our uh, foreign currency external revenues come from oil. Any change in the oil price deeply affects the Angolan economy. Absolutely either for a boom or for a bust. And now we're in the bust period. Yeah. And years also of mismanagement, misrule, and having all these Portuguese companies, Portuguese individuals, uh, basically feverishly finding ways of grabbing whatever they could from the state, mm. the Angolan state, uh, led to a situation whereby now, within a year, we have droves of Portuguese living, uh, companies collapsing for investments they made in Angola, uh, for investments in Portugal, for their relations with Angola, corruption scandals breaking up all the time, uh, breaking out all the time, um, and a very, very difficult situation for Portugal now because of the crisis in Angola yeah. and for years, I have been seeing that, I said no, you know, this is going to happen. This is going to happen because it 's not sustainable. You know, when Portugal, for instance, had the conditions to help, you know, mitigate the plunder of Angola and to say we must find ways of making the Angolan economy sustainable and help diversify Mm -hmm. it. No, but the first idea was let's get as much as we can. And that has not improved the situation in Portugal. Uh, one of the leading most venerable institutions in Portugal, private institutions, Banco Espírito Santo,
1: mm-hmm.
0: collapsed at the weight of Angolan corruption, with the weight of the Angolan corruption. Seven billion dollars disappeared from its branch in Angola and the bank collapsed. And now there are several people uh, under investigation and the former chairman of the bank now under house arrest uh, who happened to be the political kingmaker of Portuguese politics. Yeah. Um, so even with South Africa, uh business relations have always been extremely difficult for the inability of South Africans to understand the Angolan mindset and also for some resistance in going the extra mile in the corruption schemes for business to thrive in uh, in the country.
1: I mean, you, you mentioned the, the oil price. So, I mean, a lot of, a lot of Angolan oil exports was going to, to the United States of America. And that's, that's since declined with a move away from crude oil. Now Um, it's to China. Half um, of our oil is now to to China. China. So I think one might hope, and maybe this is a stretch, is that, is that with the, with the, with the change in the oil prices and the, and the reduced so a foreign currency coming into the Angolan state that perhaps that might weaken the, the government's ability to be, to be
0: oppressive. Take the carrot away. Because the government only knows how to deal with the carrot, the carrot and with the, the stick. If yeah. you take the carrot away, then they think they can use both hands to use the stick. Yeah. That's when they become more repressive. Yeah. Uh, just this morning, I was reading a statement made by the Minister of Information against basically, uh, and there was a mention that was clearly directed at me, um, and saying that good journalists are those who serve the government. This is a straightforward statement, and journalists have to be patriotic. And criticizing, and now he talks about an anti-Angolan campaign. So that's when these individuals even go back to the old days of Marxism-Leninism to try to find, rationalize how they've run the country to the ground and how, with all the potential they had, with all the control, The government has been able to master of the media landscape. Now they're being beaten in the Internet, in the social media. And each time someone from the ruling party makes a comment in defense of the regime on the social media will attract 10 more negative comments. So the social media has become the last frontier. For freedom of press and freedom of expression in the country, and the government has lost that war. In 2011, actually, uh, the president tried to pass a law. Yeah. Uh, submitted a law to the National Assembly, where his party holds 72 percent of uh, the seats. In which it would criminalize sending an email mentioning the name of a third party without the written consent of that third party. Which meant, if the state security that has access to my emails um, saw me writing about President Dushantos...
1: They can ask you, do you have his written consent? And if you don't...
0: Yes, then I could be prosecuted geez. for that. And so, the jail sentences for internet offences... Uh, went as, uh, could go up to f- 12 years, uh, in terms of, uh, prison sentence. Mm. When in fact for pedophilia, you know, in a country could just go as low as eight years. So it's the obsession of micromanaging, uh, the way people think the way people lacked, and the way people must be responsive to mediocrity, to incompetence, you know, to thievery. That's what I cannot stand, you know. Because how are we going to realize our potentials? How are we going to ensure that those who are talented? Uh Yesterday I went to uh, just to drop some uh, footage. Okay at a production company uh, refinery. And I looked at the infrastructure and I said, but why can't we have this in Angola? And the reason why I was speaking about it yeah. is because there was a poster of uh, a movie that was shot here in South Africa yeah. in which one of the leading actors is an Angolan okay. who happened to play theater with me. Okay, And then I said, you know, this is a good example. This guy played theater with me, is able now to... Uh, transition
1: and transition. On the billboard.
0: Yes, for a movie now yeah. that is being screened in international festivals. So we have potential. And then my friend said, well, but you don't have skills to run a company like this uh, back home. I said, but this actor is skilled in what he does. And when we did theater, we were creating the skills uh, for production.
1: No it's audiences, just, so the market is there. So it's yes. the ingredients. and are then there. I
0: gave the example of a young, uh, the brother of uh, one of the actors who hmm. played in the same company hmm. with me, uh, in a linga Teatro. There was we had a piano, someone had left a the piano there in the place where we rehearsed, and this young kid, who came from the slum, and he used just to go and watch us rehearse. Okay. Uh, listen to someone play on the piano, uh, for release. And within days, he was playing it. Wow. And he didn't know any musical notes. He
1: couldn't read, he didn't know the tec- he couldn't read technicalities I, behind he it. He
0: just saw this woman yeah. playing once, just for fun. And he learned it, and he played it beautifully. You know. Uh, and I gave many other examples. Said, mm. Of course we are not born dumb. <laughs> you know, we can evolve and that's what we are at. Uh, it, it's one of the critical elements, uh, in many countries. Yeah. Take Nigeria. You have Nigerians excelling everywhere in the world. Yeah, In South Africa as well. You know, South Africans. Why can't we bring back all these skills? And make our countries work for ourselves. Why do we always need, like in the case of Angola, everyone said, oh, Angola is growing. Mm. And as a kid, I have always known Angola as a country where foreigners came to run everything.
1: So that was just the norm? Right after
0: independence, the Cubans came and the Russians came to run everything. Even bakeries, we had Cuban advisors in bakeries. To run a bakery. Yes. Then the Cubans left. Then came the humanitarian period of Angola in which we had scores of uh, Americans, Frenchmen, whatever you call the NGO sector Mm. training us uh, on two weeks democracy courses and uh, food aid and so forth. And then once this humanitarian uh, period was phased out after the war, then came the Chinese and the Portuguese who flocked back. And many of them behaved as if it was just a continuum mm. of the colonial period. Mm. And then I asked myself, I've studied. I have skills. You know, I went to university at a later stage. I had to work first to save money to go to university. And I went to some, one of the best universities in the world. Yeah. And I was already an adult. And then I said, of course if i can do it many others can do it yeah. you know so why don't we realize this potential i mean you 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 mentioned
1: this idea of of social consciousness and and getting getting young people to to realize the potential they have um and, and not get sucked into this this idea that that one one can can benefit and progress without actually working for it um do you ever consider or you ever attempted to go into politics and and influence things from from that from that side. You have, do, you, do you ever picture the progress you could create, the consciousness you could create, if you had
0: the the kind of of power that the, that the state does? Uh, you've touched a very interesting questions. Uh, question. Why do we all need to be politicians? That's the first question. Mm-hmm. And when we see some of the Developed countries, their histories, some of the most influential people yeah. that have really uh, left their imprints in the development of these countries were not politicians. You don't need to be a politician to influence uh the course of um, uh, your country. You need to be. An engaged citizen, whether mm. in business, in civil society, in academia, um, as a thinker. Yeah. When we look at, for instance, some people f- might think that Gandhi was president of India. Gandhi was never president of India. He didn't join politics. Um, he was always, um, actually, when I watched uh, Gandhi's movie, mm-hmm. uh, there's a comment someone made said, you know, it's more expensive to keep Gandhi poor. <laughs> <laughs> and that if he just decided to live a normal life, but uh, the way he decided to be very humble was actually more costly for the party uh backing him. Uh, some uh, along those lines, we have in the u s Martin Luther King, yeah he was a religious leader, and he marked the history of the United States. He did not go need to go to politics to do that. Uh, we have uh scientists, academics uh, that have been extremely influential. In shaping uh, um, uh transitions uh changes in the countries we had in russia Solestin, yeah. uh Sakharov uh, they were not politicians you know so why do we always have to think that in Africa for you to do anything meaningful, you need to be a politician that's what destroys you know our intellect <laughs> that's what destroys us, and that's what enables individuals who are extremely greedy, ambitious, and mediocre mm. to capture the political space and then decide what the rest must do. Because we do not carve out um, strong um, islands, as I would call,
1: mm.
0: of uh, human resources that are able to affect politics uh, in the countries. You have great universities here but how strong is the academic, uh, academics here in um, shaping up uh, and influencing policy changes and decision making? That's the question we have to ask ourselves. They don't need to shift from academia to politics. They need to be strong in what they do because they're part of society. They're part of the state. Singers in South Africa yeah. had a tradition. Miriam Makeba, Hugh Mazakela, Yvonne Chaka Chaka. They were great freedom fighters yeah. for singing and elevating the message of freedom. Yeah. You know, uh, just days uh, ago I was passing, uh, just as I was coming, coming here, I saw the sign of, um, uh, what was that, uh, uh, Johnny Clegg and Savuka you know, you could feel the South African struggle through the music you know and take Biko his ideas remain uh, central to the South African um, history of fighting apartheid Mm. Did he have any political uh, position? No, but he was able to share his ideas. And one might criticize, one might uh, uh, disagree or whatsoever, but he was influential. Mm-hmm. He was instrumental. And this, to this date, that's what we need to think, that we don't need to be politicians, to be good citizens, and to impart Our contributions for a better society simply because we're not politicians. And in Angola, what the government tries to do is exactly to tell people, if you're a politician, you're bad. Then if you're in civil society, they said you must come, you must become a politician. So when you become a politician, then you say, you see, you only want power. You want what we have as ours, which is As if they the only ones who are uh, entitled to dominate the political space, I can challenge them from civil society as a journalist. And yes, and here also it brings one question. um, People quite often say, how can you be an activist and a journalist? And then I say, I work from my kitchen table because I'm not allowed to have a space beyond that, or resources beyond that. So, and even out of my kitchen table, I'm always under constant threat. Recently, the head of the military intelligence, uh, one of the heads of the military intelligence, um, instructed the police to raid my house to try to find documents whatsoever. Uh, Fortunately, the news came out before there was a leak. And the operation has not materialized so far. So I have to fight for the right to be a journalist. And it makes me an activist. Does it conflict with my profession? No, it does not conflict. Because I don't live in a normal society whereby I can just do my job the way I should do. I have to fight first and foremost for the space to do it.
1: I mean i i hear you i hear you I, i'm i'm curious about maka angola this uh the organization that that you run um focuses a lot on on corruption and exposing what's really going on in the country and and, and i can't help but think where do you get the material and the information from in a country where it's it's, the stakes are very high to be seen as anti-MPLAO, to be seen as anti-government, but yet you constantly have information on money transfer, on ownership deals, on, on, and, and what is this network that seems to be feeding this information on what's really going on? How how, is that, how are you able to still make that happen?
0: I, I will give you an example. Yeah. Uh, in 99, when I was in jail, then I was transferred to, uh, after 11 days in so solitary this is the first time, first, yes. time you
1: were, first.
0: first time I spent time in jail okay. um I was transferred to uh after 11 days in solitary confinement I was transferred to a normal prison mm-hmm. In the normal prison someone came a prisoner with a file and said this is all the documents pertaining corruption in the ministry of foreign affairs. So I had a file. So when I left jail,
1: a fellow prisoner just comes to you and and
0: decides you. And when I left jail, not only I left with uh, those documents, but I also left with uh, basically important records from the jail itself. And I was under surveillance in jail as well. Uh, one individual who had actually shot, and this is how I had to organize my mind, Mm. who had was in jail for having shot uh, an eight-month pregnant woman. He came to me and said, from now on I'll be your bodyguard here because you are under threat here. Uh, And then next to me, sleeping next to me, Mm was a member of a police death squad who was hiding in jail. And he would spend his day around uh, out of jail and then he would just come Mm. and sleep in jail to hide because uh, someone higher up wanted to get rid of members of that particular death squad uh, who had been instructed to... Execute a number of uh, uh, individuals involved in some funny business. And this included the nephew of a senior police officer. So this individual told me all the stories about how the death squads operated in Angola. Mm. And who ran them and everything. So when I left jail, one member of parliament said, we've given the gold to the bandit. That social consciousness, you can actually, uh, by leading by example, even within the most corrupt echelons of the power,
1: yeah.
0: you will find people who will come to you and say, I have a conscience and this is my contribution to the cause. And that's why they wanted to raid my house, believing that I would have anything in my house. I'm not that stupid. I don't have anything in the house. So, And then actually I received a call from uh, a senior officer from Mm. the police. Mm. And I said, you can come anytime. You can come and get whatever you want. Open
1: the door, let them in. Go ahead.
0: Yes, you won't find what you're looking for. Because if this very same commander, uh, head of military intelligence, when he gave the instructions, the fact that the information came out was sign enough that I didn't need documents. That whatever he was doing, he was not the one watching me. I was the one watching him. Then again, that's the influence one can have in a society in a very meaningful way. And you don't need to be a politician to do that. You need to be a good citizen. Have a very good understanding of society. Uh, at some point in my life, I dropped everything and I went to study anthropology. Mm. To understand, you know, the social mindset of Angolans. Uh So I haven't used it for academic purposes. But I'm using it for more... Uh, what I think are more relevant purposes uh, to try to engage better with all sectors of yeah. society yeah. and find ways of saying this is not a struggle against the MPLA or the president. It's a struggle for us to change for the better because we need uh, to give direction to this society. After 41 years of uh war for independence and yeah. civil war, yeah. after... 10 years of squandering the resources of the country in the post-war reconstruction, Angolans need a better chance at the future. And as an Angolan, you know, it is my duty as well and it's my privilege to say we can take this way or that way. Hmm. And for that, I don't need to be a politician. I need to be an opinion maker. I need to be someone who knows how to address issues and where the information is, because information is key to, uh, educate society.
1: I mean, you mentioned, you just mentioned education as a big part of, of what your role is. Um, I'm, I'm curious as to how widely known some of what's going on is, is, is acknowledged around the country. So, for example, you mentioned the Mount Sumi massacre. Um, whether you mentioned there were pilgrims and, 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 the, and, and sort of government forces went through and killed up to a thousand people at a religious gathering. Is that known to, to, to people in Angola, in Luanda and around the country? Do it, people it, know it, that happened?
0: It is very well known. Okay. And the government has cordoned off the area where the okay. massacre took place okay. so that journalists cannot interact. Okay. Uh, as soon as the massacre happened, I was able to interview members of the military, members of the police who were involved in the massacres as well as witnesses and the survivors. And I wrote even for uh, a piece for uh, The Guardian in, mm. in England. Um, also, what I had was someone who actually was at Mount Sumi to come to me in the capital to speak to me directly. And that shows, and as I was speaking on the phone Some people would say, but your phone is tapped. I said, yes, let them listen and know how carefully researched is this. Because how many more of you will they kill to prevent sources coming to me? Do not be afraid. Let them listen. And it's good that they listen. Because it affects them as well. And some of these people listening as well. Are human beings, are individuals. Yeah. They have feelings. And
1: they're hearing what's, what's being said.
0: And they're learning. And one day it will affect their judgment mm. and the way they are also loyal to the system. Mm. Uh, and sometimes I have uh, fun encounters with, uh, or run ins uh, with, my friends at the police and mm. the state security apparatus. Uh, just days ago as I was driving, a police officer stopped me. And when he looked at me and my name, he said, oh, for quite some time, I've made a promise that I would stop you in traffic. (laughs) And then so he went on and on and on and on. And he called his boss. I said, didn't I tell you I would stop this guy? (laughs) And, uh, And I was just looking at him like, what's going on? Then he said, that book you wrote yeah. on diamonds that landed you in court. Oh, man. I've been searching for that book. And I said, I have a spare copy in the car. I can give it to you. He said, you're joking. I said, no, 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 no. I can not give it to you. And then I gave him the book. And he said, no, no, no. You must sign. And then, interestingly enough, as I was signing, he said, so sign to sergeant, whatever. Yeah. He proudly wanted to have the book autographed
1: and signed to him, to him.
0: And uh, give me your phone number. And then he called back the boss and said, I got a book (laughs) from him. Uh, this is to say (laughs) that even when, uh, and in my own history of uh, being harassed by the police all the time. I also find the time to collect good stories of interactions with mm. police officers, uh, <laughs> and I will just tell you one, thing which is out of uh, in uh, '99 when I was in jail. Yeah. Uh, at some point, uh, I got sick, and then I had to be taken to a private clinic mm. because uh, the prison services did not want to provide me with the medical service. Mm. They said, "No, we will give you a guard." Mm since you are a high-profile prisoner, and a nurse to accompany you to a private uh, hospital, uh, clinic. So off we went. And uh, then as we finished uh, with the private clinic, the nurse said, we must go to your house and you must rest a little bit. And uh, we know your house is close to the private clinic. So I said, okay. So we went to the house and... I went and naturally I slept. You know, felt good (laughs) to... With your own bed. (laughs) So when I woke up, the police officer was completely drunk and asleep and the gun was on the other side and he on the other side. Now the problem was for me to take the police officer to the car and then take his gun. And uh, so while I was sleeping... Uh basically they raided my fridge and got all the alcohol that was there. <laughs> and uh then, okay, finally, I managed to hide the gun so that the neighbors would not see me, the prisoner, carrying the gun. <laughs> and the police completely <laughs> wasted. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> you know, this is the – so I managed to get him in the car. And then put the gun on the side. And then mm. I thought, is this some kind of devious <laughs> plot in which then he uses the gun and said that I got him drunk? It sounds like a trick. It sounds like a trap, man. Yeah, it's like, I don't know. And do I keep the gun next to him? Do I keep the gun with me? Oh, boy. And then the nurse who was still um, half conscious said, no, yep. no, no. I made you a favor. Now you need to do me a favor. We need to go and visit my girlfriend so then we drove off to the girlfriend okay and then he as i was waiting in the car with the police gun and the police <laughs> wasted he comes with the whole family and the neighbors oh, to introduce the famous prisoner <laughs> and the girlfriend was pregnant six seven months pregnant and then he asked me to be the godfather. <laughs> Of his girlfriend, of his child. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Did you agree? Did you agree?
0: I just looked at him. I said, look, can we go back to <laughs> jail? <laughs> can we discuss this another time? <laughs> you know, I, I need to go back to jail. I said, no, 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 no. <laughs> because I was getting very nervous. What happened? And I said, you know, what trick is this? And then they come and they start talking about oh, business. Jesus. And uh, the in-laws come and people then start coming out to see me in the car. Oh, geez. And then the police is wasted, his scorn. And I said, how are we going to get to jail with the police who cannot hold his gun? Anyway, so in the end, uh, as I put it, you get to a point where you just think, one day when I tell my grandchildren these stories… Yeah. They will not believe me. They will say, Oh, grandfather exaggerates. You're such a (laughs) raconteur. You know, you, you make up stories and you're a funny man. And then that's when you think, okay, society has normalized and my grandchildren cannot believe the things (laughs) I had to go through (laughs) and the Godson that you have, you have somewhere. (laughs) And then when they take things for granted, then you say, I've done my bidding. So that this story is just anecdotal. Hmm. Actually, it didn't happen and then you're happy that you don't have to, you know. And if you write about it, then it's just pure fiction yeah. because you cannot make it up. <laughs> it's just, uh... and then there was a police officer who was in charge of basically harassing me every day in jail. Jesus. And then he became my secret photographer to take pictures of the prisoners and others who uh, had some serious problems. Yeah. There are many ways you can deal with it. Many ways. Uh, and the main issue here is not to be bitter mm. and to think those are the ones stealing, doing bad. We must remove them and uh, lock them up or... Uh, Uh, send them into exile. But Mm. just understand, they're brothers and sisters. How do we address this so that it doesn't happen again? And we can then find that common path, you know, so that uh, even their grandchildren, when they say, you know, your grandfather stole $10 billion, they say, no, that's not possible. (laughs) You know, you're making up this story. Mm. And then you say, okay, this child is also normal now. Because now, there is a whole generation that believes they're entitled to plunder the country. Uh, there is an expression in Angola among the children of the elite. Meaning, my father or my mother steals galore as a badge of honor. And when I talk about social consciousness, I'm talking about very simple things as making these young people understand that stealing a law is not a badge of honor it is a crime and must be dealt with as a crime Mm. and there's nothing to be honored about committing such crimes that deprive uh, the majority of the people of access to basic services
1: I mean you've mentioned young people a lot um, as you've spoken and and, and their, their mindsets to what's going on do you think there may be a turning point coming soon with the likes of the fifteen young people who are meeting and discussing um sort of political consciousness um do you th- Do you think it's possible that perhaps there's another younger generation of activists that are becoming more more aware and more willing to to get stuck into this conversation not only on social media but
0: but on the streets? Angola is undergoing right now a turning point. What we need to assess is whether the tipping point, uh, if I might, uh, and I'm, English is not my first language, so. But I like to make a difference between the turning point the and the point. tipping point. Okay. Turning point because things will not be the same. There is change. Okay. In the way uh, change because the economy has been affected. And the economy was the trump card of the government mm. because it could use it to buy international legitimacy and also tell people, you wait for your turn. Without the economic discourse of success, the government has very little to bargain with uh, the rest of society. The tipping point, what is it going to make change tomorrow or after or within 10 years? That's what we don't know yet and have to figure out so there is this is a turning point but what's the tipping point that make things uh, that change that we dream of in a very scared way and sometimes we also think of it as a nightmare and in a country where the president has been in power for 36 years You still have people believing. like, But if he goes, who's going to rule us? And you also might have the same uh, mindset in Mugabe. But yeah, Mugabe goes, but who's going to rule us? The Stockholm Syndrome. Yeah. And uh, that's where we have to invest more to make people understand. Because what these leaders are good at is at making themselves um, irreplaceable and creating in uh, society the idea that no one else can do what they do. Whether they do it right or wrong, they're the ones who must do it. And uh, quite often you also hear from uh, diplomats and uh, members of the international community saying, well, the president of Angola is the factor of stability. Mm. What stability when his police is beating up the mothers of protesters, uh, when um, he's plundering, bleeding the country dry? What stability? So that's why uh, by exposing corruption, by exposing human rights abuses, uh, by making the linkage between uh, the current uh, the economic situation, the inequalities in the country, uh, we're able to expand the conversation and uh, somehow reduce the levels of public relations uh, that have uh, foreign governments, multinationals mm-hmm. with high interests in Angola, protecting the status quo. And that has been the difference, let's say, with Zimbabwe. Once Mugabe berated Tony Blair, mm. the British press went after him uh, in ways that at some, time, some, at some point became counterproductive. Mm. In the case of Angola, for many years, you had the whole international community singing praise for the regime. And the regime could essentially act with impunity Mm. and international legitimacy for that impunity. And that impunity can only be stripped, you know, by stripping the ability of the regime to use the economy to essentially please foreign audiences in detriment of the well-being of uh, the Angolan people.
1: I mean, you've mentioned this idea of solidarity, I think, not only in Africa, but amongst journalists and, and other sort of fellow activists. Um, are you seeing enough of that on the continent and with South African, uh, media and journalists and, and, and continental ones? Or do, do you think there's still some more that,
0: that we can do in standing, standing together? Unfortunately, and here we have to be truthful. Yeah. There is very little solidarity among, uh, African journalists among uh, civil societies in Africa. And quite often that solidarity has to go through international Western organizations. And uh, one example was the case of Tulani Maseko and Becky Mahubu in uh, Swaziland. The greatest pressure came from Western organizations. My own trial, the greatest pressure came from uh, Western organizations I had a friend, a South African journalist trying to push hmm. the South African media to cover more Angola, yeah. but that was quite difficult. And sometimes you just find out of uh, personal interest, uh, like, uh, I think a year or two ago, I did a major uh, article on uh, the persecution of Islam in Angola. Hmm. And uh, there is a radio here in Johannesburg which called me uh, Islam, uh, I think it's, it's basically dedicated to Islamic issues. Okay. So they called me to talk about that. Mm. But then, out of on volition of the journalists, each time they realized there was a problem in Angola, they would call me. And so it just became a regular feature. During my trial, they also called me and said, you know, hey, brother, how things going? Mm. So I think it's more important for solidarity to be also – for us to have the ownership and initiative of um, having more solidarity between one another, you know. Uh, Like, for instance, uh, the Western media will often call me and say, can you write a piece on this or on that? And I will do it. Mm. Uh, Do I get calls, for instance, for African media outlets to say, you know, can you write a piece? And not that the Western media will pay me for Mm. what I write, but the African brothers will not call me for that. (laughs) So we need to change that. And again... Quite often we think we need to be politicians. There's always great solidarity among politicians. Oh yeah. Do we need to be politicians as well as journalists to interact more between us? Of course not. I mean I I hear you and I really
1: you know I really think it's something we need to push for. And you thankfully your sort of time here this week I hope has started fostering those 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 conversations. Um, I'm curious to your, your analysis sort of back to this political situation in Angola right now of sort of analyzing the trends and seeing what you're calling a turning point and seeing all the elements coming together, not only the oil price, not only, uh, Dos Santos' time and power, not only things like the Monsumi massacre. And when you look at it all together, what, what, if you had to speculate on, 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 on what things are going to look like in the next 10 years, where do you, where do you see this going?
0: In the next, uh, I wouldn't speculate on the next 10 years, okay. but let's say in the next 10 years, 20 years.
1: 20, okay.
0: We will see an Angola as a driving force in Southern Africa. Driving economic force, driving social force, uh, driving political force, uh, for one main reason. Uh, at this point in time, the majority of Angolans can stand for as a clean slate. We have a very young population, very eager to learn. And once they're provided with good schooling, mm. uh, there will be a major force to reckon with. Um, and also Angolans will not be shy about making decisions in the region, which South Africa has been shying away. And uh also there's something I discuss with my South African friends. <laughs> uh, who say, well, you know, we have all these skills, but uh, we lack some socialization skills. And I said, Angolans have plenty of that and can teach South Africans how to dance kizomba <laughs> and have more fun. So relax a little bit okay. more <laughs> you know, and be more socially interactive and, and have great fun. That is possible. Uh, and when I say driving force, mm-hmm. The idea of regional powers must be cast aside. We don't need regional powers. What we need is driving forces for us to move together because we need to move together, you know. Uh, many industries in South Africa are somehow not able to generate more uh, jobs Mm. because of exports. Angola needs lots of exports, uh, imports a lot. We need factories. We need to industrialize the country. Yeah. And South Africa can play a major role in that. But for that, we need to root out corruption as the institutional mechanism to do business in the country, you see. Uh, that's why you cannot detract from these issues if you want to move forward. And... um So there is no need for competition between South Africa and Angola, but partnership so that the countries with lesser resources can also benefit because for you to take goods from South Africa to Angola and vice versa, you have to cross uh, Namibia, for instance. And just the cooperation between the two countries stands to to benefit also a third country. And more countries can benefit from that. Um, and again, I have this focus on economics, on the economy, because that's what creates jobs. There is a large, uh, population in South Africa that is, that is disenfranchised yeah. because they have no jobs or then are paid wages that, um, just put bread on their plates and very little else. Um, but if there is a strong, economic um partnership then we can have be the driving forces and then you have Congo with huge potential do we have to let the west china and others always come and say well you know we're here to help you and we will mm. take as much as we can yeah. and leave very little because you don't know what you're doing with your resources and you're not able to get your acts together. No, we can't do it. But we need to be strong. We need to be uh, very open-minded. And we need to criticize what is wrong, regardless whether it's President Zoom or President Dushantos or whoever, so they can see the light. And also uh they can see that great progress for the majority of people means they can even have more money in their pockets and live without, uh you know, the fear of being persecuted for this or for that. Because or not being able to leave office because... <laughs> exactly, exactly. Like Mr. Dushantos now is trapped in, <laughs> yeah. in the office of the presidency. He's trapped there. Uh, and then he it's like when we watch those movies, uh, uh, bad movies, in which a guy says, okay, I'm surrounded. Now I will just uh, booby trap <laughs> the place around me for the last stand. <laughs> that needs to change. Yeah. Um, the other important aspect as well, for instance, there is very little cultural interaction in the region. South Africa knows very little about Angola literature, music and so forth, yeah. and vice versa, and Zambia and others, we need to find ways of connecting the academias of these countries, uh, the music industry and other industries, yeah. so the interactions are not dependent upon the bilateral relations between the governments. Yeah. And that's again where it is completely wrong because we think everything must be done by politicians, and we surrender our freedoms, our lives to the politicians. Not because the politicians want to take all that responsibility; it's just because we're too lazy to. to. (laughs) That's it, Rafael.
1: Thank you so much for being for being a really a, a beacon of what it means. To stand up for what is truthful and what is just and thank you for thank you for making time for this interview
0: thank you very much kingsley and thank you for uh, those listening and i hope uh you know the idea of social consci- consciousness uh rings a bell and that uh, you can all share and discuss it and see then how we can talk more about this because we need uh, desperately that social consciousness back. Fantastic.
1: Thank you for listening to the Daily Maverick Show. You know where to find us on CliffCentral.com. Remember you can download the podcast or listen live every Tuesday from 1 to 2 PM.
0: Thank you. This is
1: CliffCentral.com.